Welcome to the Compounder Bros Podcast, where we go behind the scenes to show you how the sausage is really made. I'll be your host. My name is Billy. Pinch is sick today, so won't be joining us. Today will be more of a solo cast. I thought today would be a great time to go through 2020 market outlooks. You guys' email inboxes are probably inundated just like mine is from wholesalers and strategists and portfolio managers uh, talking about their 2020 market outlooks. So I will take you through some things that I think are good to know uh, before we get to that. Um, let's go through our, our caveats here. So, uh, Pinch uh, and I each have several years of relevant industry experience. We've had titles like Director of Wealth Strategies and uh, Vice President of Major Brokerages, you may have heard of, due to the fact that our bosses would have us killed if they heard us airing out our unfiltered opinions for non-fee-paying customers. We've had to disguise our voices and our broadcasting deep from an underground bunker. Today is January 5th. Instead of going through screens, we're going to screen some 2020 market outlooks for you, maybe tease out a few important uh, nuggets. Before we get to the fruits of our labor, uh, we also want to remind you that this is a hobby for Pinch and I. And during the week, we do a lot of hard work. We listen to earnings calls. We meet with seven- and eight-figure clients. We read research reports. We've made sure and do absolutely none of that here. We want to remind you this is just a couple guys kicking back after work, maybe drinking a beer, maybe smoking a bong load. Uh, We should not be taken seriously, and you should do your research somewhere else. With that said, let's get to it. So everyone has got an opinion, just like everybody talks out of their ass, whatever that saying is. Today, we're going to run through a few 2020 outlooks and tell you what you really need to know. So the first thing you need to do before you take any 2020 market outlook too seriously you need to read Fooled by Randomness and Anti-Fragile um, by Nassim Taleb. I think those are they should be required reading in, in grade schools. Um, I think Nassim Taleb is a, is a prophetic voice, and I think that he really does a good job when it comes to investing of, of showing you and, show, you know, he's done a lot for me, and he's, he's impacted my life, and, and um, I think that he does a good job of just, he's made a lot of money betting on the fact that people don't really know, what they're, and big banks don't really know what they're talking about when they're forecasting interest rates three years out. They're forecasting the further amount of time that goes out, um, the the more likely that your strategy or that your uh, price target for 2024 is wrong, and and the more the implications. And this is life in financial markets, and financial markets are really just a, a collection of the opinions of, of you know us highly evolved primates uh, yelling at each other. Financial markets um, are hard to predict, and I think that's the most important thing. That's what I'm trying to say here. So um, we're trying to focus today when we go through these, and um, <clears throat> we're just trying to focus on the big things that actually matters. Again, not so much just year-end price targets. Um, so we, I see a lot of these, too. We go through a lot, and that's where I've gotten these nuggets um, that, I, that I want to share with you today. So we're going to go through... Um, We'll share just some random nuggets, but we're going to go through three, four pieces that I thought were really interesting. So there's a, a Seeking Alpha article I, I read uh, from a guy named Eric Parnell. He runs a service on, on Seeking Alpha called Global Macro Research. This um, this article went viral, if you will, on Seeking Alpha, and so I want to break it down and take out a couple of the important uh, insights. Uh, Capital Group's 2020 Outlook, I think they do a good job 
focusing on the long term and uh, focusing on you know bottom up research and knowing what you really own and stuff like that. And they've uh, Capital Group is the 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 ownership group that owns uh, American Funds, and they've uh, American Funds has been around since the 1930s, done a great job historically, and so uh, they I think they have a couple of interesting uh, juicy tidbits in there in their 2020 outlook that I thought I would like to share with you guys. And then lastly, Mebfaber and Bridgewater each came up with some interesting, they published some interesting research, interesting research in 2019 as it pertains to global uh, investing that I thought would be good to keep in mind when you're thinking of your portfolio in 2020 and, and probably some blind spots that you have um, very likely um, if, you're, if you're like most people. So first, let's go through Mr. Parnell's article. <clears throat> Again, his service on, on Seeking Alpha is called Global Macro Research. Shout out to him. Uh, the guy's name is Eric Parnell. Does writes interesting stuff. So he writes five bold predictions for the decade ahead. So prediction number one. The first prediction he has is that stocks in some point, in, not in 2020, but in the 2020s, will be uh, cut in half if not more. So the stock market gets cut in half again, as it is. It, at some point in the next decade, perhaps, perhaps in the first few years, the S&P 500 index is primed to experience another major bear market that could take it lower by 50 or 60% or more. And again, this, this, is, this happens, right? Um, you know, 2009, um, you know, set the NASDAQ in 2000, um, uh, you have uh 87 crash so every once in a while this happens right just just you know it it could happen maybe just right when the last one kind of slips investors memory but um but it's it's not exactly spaced out by time but this happens so for one at some point stocks are going to get cut in half what are you going to do about it is the question right so or you know as an investor what are you going to do about it when the stock market the market of stocks um, gets cut in half. Are you going to sell your stocks? You need to go to cash. You're going to have some some beautiful insight, maybe from your uh, listening to the Combinator Bros podcast. You're going to be all in cash before that, uh, before this you know 56 percent correction comes. Probably not. Okay. Um, so something to keep in mind. At some point, cuts will get stocks and go cut in half. Number two, the bond market is going to get neutered. His word, not mine. As an asset class in the 2020s. Um, well, and you know, especially, and the reason he says this is when you look at bonds, what are you really buying? You're buying the, you're buying the coupon and nothing more. You can't expect uh, a dividend increase. You can't expect capital appreciation unless you know there's some, some, um, you know, there's some catalyst there or something that you know about. But generally, when you're buying bonds, you're buying coupons. And when you're buying coupons, you're expecting to get what the coupon rate is. And when the ten-year coupon rate is from the federal government is 1.9% or 1.78%, I think is it right now, um, you're going to return about 1.78% minus uh, the fee inside of the fund, even if it's, you know, Vanguard BND, there's some fee there. Vanguard BND, uh, which is Vanguard Total Bond, um, which invests in all investment-grade bonds and investment um, in, in corporates as well as treasuries, uh, it pays more like 2.7. There's still a 0.04% fee. So, um, again, you're, <clears throat> and that's, so for, so let's say BND, you own BND, you're making your 2.7%. If interest rates go up from here, which, yeah, they're, they're called all time lows for a reason, right? And look at not just the United States, but around the world. Um, if interest rates go up from here, that's not going to be good for your 
percent return, right? You're going to probably, if interest rates go up, you'll make more income on the on future uh, bonds that are issued. But the portfolio of bonds that you own now is going to go down. That's how uh, interest rates and bonds uh, work together. So anyway, and that's before your FA charges you anything, right? Uh, your FA is charging you one percent. There's a fee inside of the mutual fund, and the whole thing's going to return about two. Uh, gross of all those fees. So long story short, bonds are screwed. Um, <clears throat> that's prediction number two from Mr. Parnell. Prediction number three, global monetary system enters its latest major change. So again, we're not talking about year-end price targets here, right? We're talking about these are major changes in monetary regime, right? So let's listen to what he's talking about here. He says, major changes have... So there's been several regimes, he calls it, um, that have historically taken place in the global monetary system. They usually last for 25 or 50 years. So he talks about the gold standard, which went from 1870s to, to roughly World War One. He talks about the attempted rest restoration and eventual demise of the gold standard from World War One to 1930s. The third monetary regime he, he calls out is Bretton Woods from 1945 to 1971. Um, and then the fiat system that's in that's come since then, uh, which has been the last 50 years, right? So it's 72 till, uh, till today. And what defines uh, our current system, uh, according to Mr. Parnell, is that currencies issued by sovereign nations are backed by the full faith and credit of the issuing government. Since the financial crisis, global governments have been testing this full faith in spades, including eye-watering near quadrupling of global central bank balance sheets over the past decade that has played a major role in the persistent widening of wealth income inequality we see today so blah 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 asset bubbles have for a reason he uh happen for a reason he says when they end you will also often ahead of time uh in predicting and we'll <clears throat> while they end in ruin they are also often ahead of their time in predicting what is eventually to come. Very few internet-related companies from the dot-com bubble in the 1990s are still around today, but the internet itself continues to transform the way we do business today. He says all of that to say this. Cryptocurrencies came into existence in 2009 in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis for a reason. As they entered into the bubble of epic proportions, they burst violently at the end of 2017. While few, if any, of the cryptocurrencies in the past may still be in existence in a decade from now, um, these digital assets may reside at the heart of the next major transformation in the global monetary system. As the disaffected masses that have increasingly been electing more far left and far right outsider candidates into political leadership eventually move to seize the global currency system away from today's issuing governments and the and their print happy central bankers as well. So you get it. His prediction is the stock market's going to get cut in half. Bonds are screwed. The global monetary system regime is going to change. Okay. So these are things to look out for. Not so much what the SPY is going to be at in a year from now, because nobody knows nothing. Um, active management shines as passive hits its reckoning. Value over growth. Uh, active shines. So his fourth prediction is that active management uh, is going to shine. Um, believe it or not, it's not a foregone conclusion by God that the S&P 500 is going to outperform everything um, and your index funds are going to outperform all of Mac active management. Uh, part of, there's a tie-in there. Maybe there's a tie-in where the, uh, correlation in the market and central, uh, central bank uh, balance sheet expansion. And so, long story short, since central banks have you know, been a major part of this bull run here we've had in the last 10 years. 
um, when <clears throat> he, Mr. Parnell is, addict, uh, is predicting that active management has its time to shine uh, going forward. And the last and the fifth prediction, and actually the one I have the most problem with, the one that I would uh, that personally just doesn't really ring true to me, and I'll talk about why, is this uh, he believes there will be two new alternative asset classes born in the 2020s. He thinks sports betting and prediction markets are going to be um, big asset classes in the 2020s. And just real quick, I don't know if any, you know, <clears throat> I don't have deep thoughts on either of these. I've actually bet on both personally, of course, sports like everybody else. And I love, you know, I love betting college football and betting the dogs and stuff and betting 20, that, you know, that I'll win 100 if, you know, Iowa State can go into Austin and knock off Texas at home or something like that. Like, that's fun for me. Um, and the, in the prediction markets, which are a lot of times uh, the political markets, especially around, predict, uh, around election time, uh, the political sport uh, betting is, is very interesting. And I did a little bit of that in 2016 uh, for fun. And uh, a tiny, I mean, a tiny, tiny bit. And um, the, the point really is that uh, I, the, the reason I would, I see there is an, in, <clears throat> there is, if you own a stock and, the stock pays a dividend, and the company can raise that dividend over time. There are fundamental reasons why owning stocks makes sense. Uh, the same can be said for fixed income. The same can be said for real estate. Um, <clears throat> maybe as a diversify. Sports betting is a zero sum game. It is the you know it is just people taking money from other te- people before the house even gets paid. Right? It's just it's zero sum. And so, and so, and same with prediction markets. And for that reason, just as, you know, you know, I guess maybe as like, it's an alternative asset class, I guess, in the same way that managed futures can be an alternative asset class. And that if you can display manager skill over a long period of time, then you can attract a lot of assets, that's for sure. So anyway, so that's five big predictions from Mr. Parnell, Eric Parnell, Global Macro Research on Seeking Alpha, good guy to follow, and, um, you know, maybe a couple, maybe a couple nuggets in there for you guys. Let's look at uh, Capital Group's groups research uh, for our 2020 outlook. I thought there was a couple nuggets in here that maybe the long-term investor needs to needs to hear again. So, <clears throat> historically, during election years, there are there's lots of volatility, and so what they talk about is um, there's a lot of volatility, but that a lot of that volatility is is primarily during the the run-up to the election and in the primary season. But when November rolls around, the markets have historically notched solid gains after their primary, uh, after the primary season. So point being, there's no reason historically to sell stocks because we're in an election year. That's probably not the, the, <clears throat> the uh, probably not the move. Um, according to American Funds and Capital Group, they say... The volatility during the the election can produce select opportunities. For example, they call out specifically pharma and uh, and managed care stocks. Uh, they have recently come under pressure amid political criticism of private health uh, insurance sector. So yeah, I mean, like you know, UNH. Um, what's the other one we were looking at the other day? I mean, there's you know all of these uh, these healthcare stocks are cheap. Cigna, uh, CVS is now the owner of Aetna. Um, so, you, you know, look at these, you know, look at what these guys traded at a, on a price earnings basis. Global economic. So. So, yeah. So the, the pressure could create some attractive valuations if you don't think that the government takeover of the, of the nation's healthcare system is imminent. And it's not. 
I mean, you know, long story short, I mean, I'm not here to predict the future, but, um, you know, even, even, you know, Elizabeth Warren came out with her medical, well, I say all this, I mean, although it does look like I was looking at on Twitter today and Bernie Sanders is really kind of, uh, trending strong in the polls, uh, for the democratic primary. So who knows? But I just, you know, the United States healthcare system, government takeover of it. If you don't think that's going to happen, you know, maybe there's some, some, um, some potential in, in insurance company stocks um, that have been created because of the <clears throat> because of some of the so so look for that next year too look for because of Democratic candidates saying crazy things that affect different businesses and cannabis and tobacco and healthcare and financial stocks and energy stocks and everything know that a lot there's a lot of a lot of bark and a lot of times not a lot of bite according to American Fund's diligent research here. Uh, they talk a little bit about, from a macro level, uh, global economic growth is slowing due to the trade war. Um, we, of course, have political turmoil in Europe, like Brexit, violent protests in Hong Kong. Uh, they also say to look at some of the positives, of course. I mean, this is a long, only mutual fund company, so that's something to be taken into consideration. They say look at the U.S. trade deal, a likely Brexit resolution, and to return to normal levels of ISM manufacturing activity. I like what here this uh, this PM says, Jonathan Knowles. The world is messy right now, and we've just had we just got to deal with it. We're living in an incredibly disruptive times, politically, economically, and socially. Our job as investors is to find companies that will prosper no matter which way the macro wind is blowing. I like that. That's uh, that's very beautiful, Jonathan. Um, lower for longer interest rates are here to stay. These are another American funds tidbit. Uh, so yeah, we can look. At, you know, we're in the giant central bank experiment. And uh, how's it working out? Well, you know, equity markets are doing good. Uh, some would say we've been pumping a system full of, you know, hydrogen gas, and it's about to explode. Um, again, if I knew that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here in my living room. You know. Well, actually, I probably would be, so we'll see. But uh, current 10-year yields, United States government, 1.78. Canada, 1.46. Italy, 1.24. Again, so you're lending money to the feds for 10 years. In the United States, they pay you 1.78. In Canada, it's 1.5. Italy, it's 1.2. And Italy's, you know, of course, was just last year a pig, right? Uh, Portugal, Italy, or uh, yeah, anyway, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, Spain, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues in Italy. They're, they're borrowing money for 1.24% for 10 years. Uh, UK, just uh, leaving the EU, they, they're charging 0.7% or the market is, you know, basically uh, only demanding 0.7% to loan them money for 10 years. Japan, negative 0.1%. France, negative 0.1%. Germany, negative 035 The market is paying to lend you money. To lend the German federal government money. That's where we're at right now. And that's because of central bank experimenting and just kind of that's the way things are. You want to read more about that? Um, you know, read Ray Dalio's book. Read, uh, you know, there's a lot of good writing about that. On this <clears throat> recession of 2020 that is so imminent, right? Everybody talks about it. Uh, it's all over CNN. My. You know, my liberal friends are asking me if they should, 
sell their stocks ahead of the election season because everybody knows the recession's coming in 2020. Like, as if it was that easy. <laughs> and as if it was just that well televised, right? Well, here's what uh, Capital Group economist David Spence thinks. Um, we are seeing a tale of two economies. While manufacturing has been weak, consumer fundamentals have been strong. As long as this remains the case, I don't expect a recession in the next year. Um, so there, there you have it. As long as the consumer remains strong, maybe we can get out of 2020 uh, without a recession. That would be nice for the markets, probably. Uh, pricing power. Look for some. Uh, look for companies with pricing power. American Fund says semiconductor manufacturers have consolidated, giving uh, TSM, uh, TSCM, which is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, Intel more pricing power than ever. There used to be a lot more semiconductor competitors. Nike and Adidas are capitalizing on the rising demand of China, and other markets have pricing power. Um, <clears throat> Amazon and Alibaba have pricing power in terms of a of a platform that can demand lower prices for suppliers and pass them on to customers. So not just pricing power in form of in the form of being able to charge more, but uh, maybe if your platform can deliver lower prices to customers, that's another form of pricing power. So look for pricing power, you know, when you're making your 2020 investment decisions. Look at balance sheet strength. And again, I don't know if this is a 2020 thing or this is something you should probably always do. But look for solid dividend pairs that can raise dividends. Cap Group calls out uh, UNH, Microsoft. Uh, UNH is United Healthcare. Um, <clears throat> Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, and Home Depot is examples of companies with solid credit ratings who have paid meaningful dividends and can raise them from here. International stocks. Let's talk about that a little bit. International stocks rose in 2019 but have trailed the – the S&P 500 for eight of the last 10 years. So, and this is why, I mean, I have so many smart people that I, that I talk to that have such a giant home country bias where the bulk of their money is, is or, or essentially all, or in some cases all of their money is in the S&P 500. And they'll talk about, well, Drew, Billy, 40% of revenues come from overseas. Right. And so uh, of the S&P 500. And yes, that's true. Um, but that is certain. But in what way? I mean, like it, these, it's, just, it's such a global um, supply chain that 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 stat gets thrown around a lot. And actually, when you look at um, when you look at <clears throat> where the revenue is actually coming from, it's it's more complicated than that. So so you do need to have well, you can do whatever you want. But personally, my money uh, my, you know, my, my clients, my family, yeah, we're having we're absolutely much more than, you know, your the typical American of, you know, maybe 10% of their portfolio exposed to international equities. Uh, I think it makes sense to have, to, to be more geographically agnostic than that and look for good companies regardless of where they're domiciled. I think that's the most important thing. Another note on that. Um, so in the last 10 years, international stocks have outperformed. Excuse me. In the last 10 years, United States stocks have outperformed international stocks. Um, but there's reasons for that, right? And so, however, companies, in the highest, companies with the highest annual returns, regardless of where they're domiciled, are overwhelmingly located outside the United States. So in 2019, the 50 top returning companies in the world regardless of where they're domiciled, 
the most money you could have made betting on, you know, betting on any individual one company in 2019, 37 of those 50 were not in the United States. Okay, so of the 50, only 13 were in the United States. The other 37 were outside the United States. Why and how can this be if, if eight of the last 10 years international stocks have underperformed U.S. stocks? Well, uh, for one, there's a much larger opportunity set outside the United States. There are three times as many investable foreign companies as there are domestic. Another reason is international indexes, they don't tell the whole story. So <clears throat> international companies uh, or international stock markets and international stock indices typically have more old economy sectors. So materials, financials like banks, energy companies, resource companies, you know, extractive, uh, you know, industries, um, you know, that's what you're finding more in your international indexes and especially in emerging markets. And those are not as good as businesses as software or, or healthcare. They haven't those, you know, you can, there's just a bigger multiple on a, you know, um, a, a software company that has, that's in a, you know, that has free cash flow than there is on a bank that's in a third world country. That's just uh, the way investors, you know, that's just the return that investors demand. So, for example, you know, a bank is going to trade at a lower, you know, like a third world country bank is going to trade at a lower price to earnings or cyclically adjusted price to earnings or any valuation metric you'd like than a, um, you know, a, a <clears throat> tech giant like Amazon or Google. So, that's uh, some notes there. I think there's there's opportunity outside the United States is <clears throat> part of what American Funds is trying to say. And and that kind of led me back to another piece I want to talk about with you guys, which is back in, what was this, May or June, Meb Faber, great <clears throat> investment researcher. He's got a, the Meb Faber Show as his podcast. He's got mebfaber.com. He runs Cambria Asset Management. He came out with a podcast, excuse me, a, uh, a blog post, and it said, I don't feel overconfident. Over, excuse me. It said, I don't feel overweight. And it talks about how <clears throat> generally U.S. investors keep about 80% of their stocks in the United States, or 80% of their stocks and bonds, actually, um, in the United States. And... What Meb is talking about in this piece, he's talking about how, think about this. So if you break down the world, just oversimplify, use round numbers. We're, we're on a podcast. Okay, luckily, uh, <clears throat> you know, you guys can't see me. I can't see you. The world is, if you broke up the world into a pie chart, it's really four equal slices of pie. Okay, as far as the market capitalization of investable assets. It's one quarter U.S. stocks, one quarter foreign stocks one quarter U.S. bonds, one quarter foreign bonds. And that's essentially above the, the global uh, investable asset universe. And so with that, if so if you do anything other than owned, own one, 25% of your assets in SPY, 25% of your assets in BND, 25% of your assets in you know Vanguard All World ETF, whatever that one is, and the you know Vanguard All World Bond ETF, um, or <clears throat> I guess it would be all international uh, stock and all international bond. If you do anything other than that, you are making an active bet. Okay, you are if you're like the average American and you're eighty percent 
all in on U.S. or 80% in on U.S., that you're, ma- you're making a massive active bet that the U.S. market will outperform the rest of the world. Meb says, uh, according to his post uh, back from 2019, this is a bad idea for the following reasons. For one, over the past 70 years, the U.S. stock market has been a darling. It's outperformed foreign stocks by 1% a year. $10,000 invested in the United States in 1950 turned into $14 million. Only $8 million if you invested in the Vanguard uh, International Stock Market Index, which, of course, didn't exist in 1950, but you know what I mean. How much of that outperformance has come since 2009, you ask? All of it. The U.S. is the second most expensive market in the world based uh, currently based on cyclically adjusted price earnings. So the bad news is, this is Meb in quotes, so... The bad news is the U.S. is expensive on valuation, second highest in the world. The good news, most of the world is normal to cheap, and emerging markets are really cheap. The cheap bucket is screaming cheap. The U.S. market has underperformed uh, equal weighting. So even, so we'll talk a little more about, so here's what he means by that uh, regarding cheap. So here's like, Here's expensive. So an expensive cyclically adjusted price earnings. And these you, these numbers are not actually just the P.E. They're the P.E. blended with a, a handful of other value metrics that um, that uh, Mr. Faber uses, Meb uses. Um, ex- expensive capes. And these are from, this is not, these are, I think, re- re- reflecting 2017 data. So, or the end of 2017. So, it's, you know, two-year-old data. Mexico, 38, Switzerland, 37, India, 38, <clears throat> Philippines, 40. So it's not just, you know, not just the U.S., not necessarily even the countries you'd expect, right? India, 38, Philippines, 40, U.S., 42, Denmark, 44. Um, that's, that's, their, that's their essentially adjusted cape. Um, <clears throat> some dirt cheap capes. The Czech Republic's at four. Again, the United States is 42. Denmark's 44, Czech Republic's 4, Russia's 5, Portugal 5, Poland 5, Brazil 8, Spain 8, Egypt 9, Turkey 13. Uh, Sample or middle of the road uh, capes would be like the UK's at 20, China's at 20, France is at 20, Israel 22, Finland 23, Australia 22. So what do you do with all this data? Well, I think you need to own some some global stuff. That's the idea. Um, and even though, again, eight of the last 10 years, the United States stock market has outperformed um, international stocks just head to head, the U.S. stock market has underperformed an equal weighting in eight of the last 12 decades. So even though the United States <clears throat> stock market has been uh, the darling for the last 50, 60, you know, since we kicked ass in back to back world wars, uh, even though, and then we rebuilt Europe, and then, you know, et cetera, extrapolate forward, even though <clears throat> all those things, still an, e- um, an equal weighting of major stock market in- indexes or indices, um, that has outperformed the United States stock market in eight of the last 12 decades. So be global, think global, think big picture um, in your investing. And I think, and a, and a, a, so a couple of closing thoughts. 
Well, here's a, here's a fun piece of research I liked from, oh yeah, here's a couple notes from, yeah, Bridgewater basically says the same thing. So Bridgewater, so yeah, so be global, <clears throat> think, think big picture. So let's think about the difference here. So, um, <clears throat> Meb Faber versus American funds. They're both saying that there's an opportunity globally. There's there, your best opportunities are outside of the United States. And I think that's hard to argue with. They do disagree about how to get there. Meb Faber is a not a stock picker. He used to be. He's a very smart guy. And he is just an indexer. That's all he focuses on is uh, basically he does like he's – a, he's a quant actually is what he is. He's not just an indexer. He's a quant. So he uses value and momentum models to just look at stocks from a quantitative basis and just look at the numbers behind them. He doesn't listen to stories. And, and American Funds is the opposite, right? They are a bottom-up researcher. They are a global research organization. They're the largest active manager in the world. They have research facilities and portfolio managers stationed 35, 40 different locations throughout the, throughout the world. They travel all over the world. They meet with the heads of these various companies, and they're building a story, and they're building out a web of, of different stories about supply chain manufacturing and all this stuff and that is how they're building their investing framework so um american funds would tell you to pick funds or pick companies to to own your global stuff meb would tell you to just own you know be global own his uh own his cambria funds <laughs> probably is what he'd tell you maybe or probably not he's a pretty pragmatic guy um or <clears throat> he but he does have an etf uh suite called uh cambria funds or he would tell you to um, just own the world and, and you know do it for a long time and do it cheaply, whereas American funds would tell you own their funds. Um, let's talk a little bit about Meb points to some re- some new research from that Bridgewater put out in 2019. It's called uh, G- the white paper called "Geographic Dis- Diversification Can Be a Lifesaver," yet more, most portfolios are highly geographically concentrated. So. Um, <clears throat> a couple interesting quotes. I'll, I'll, uh, so you just probably punch in on Google, Bridgewater Geographic Diversification White Paper. This will come up. And it says, a couple interesting quotes. So <clears throat> this one says, In the past century, there have been many times when investors concentrated in, in one country and saw their wealth wiped out by geopolitical upheavals, debt crises, monetary reforms, or the bursting of bubbles, while markets in other countries remain resilient. So be diversified across global, uh, across uh, different countries, and no one, <clears throat> and no one country cons- consistently outperforms, as outperformance can lead to relative overvaluation and subsequent reversal. So geographical diversification has big upside and little downside for investors. Another quote: the to illustrate the impact of geographic diversification, we begin we begin by looking at the characteristics of return streams from single countries relative to their weighting a portfolio equally across countries, rebalancing annually. Another interesting tidbit. An investor concentrated in Russia or Germany in the early 20th century would have been lost most of all most or all of their of their wealth, while an equally weighted mix of five countries shown below 
does almost as best as the best performer. So long story short, diversification can bail you out of a whole world of shit um, as Russia and Germany will <clears throat> you know, provide uh, excellent examples of. Um, <clears throat> and, and really, that essentially for me sums it. Um, I think that what you can do with that information, so TLDR, right? Too long, didn't read. Here's what I would say. Here's here's my mark, macro outlook. All this, you know, like like I said, I read a lot of them, right? Um, <clears throat> and and what I would say is, it's I wouldn't because the calendar year turns over, doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything with your portfolio. So that's one. Um, but a couple of the the final four takeaways I would say are, number one, know what you own. Okay, buying S and P five hundred. Um, and just, you know, thinking it's going to outperform everything forever is what's called home country bias is <laughs> one word for it. And, um, <clears throat> and, ex- and over extrapolating uh, recency, which is, you know, maybe recency bias is also an example of what it is. So know what you own. Um, you very likely are displaying home country bias <clears throat> in your portfolio, right? I mean, if you don't have you know, 30, 40, 50% of your, of your equities are outside the United States, you're making an active bet that the United States will outperform from here. Believe it or not, the S&P 500 may not outperform from here. So that's point three. And <clears throat> point four, and something I didn't talk about too much, but where my where I lie on this whole active versus passive in um, globally inefficient markets Outside of the U.S., I think active management seems like a really good idea. I think in China, where the Chinese Communist Party is a major shareholder of a lot of the major enterprise there, um, you are investing in a murky system in where where incentives are not totally aligned when you are investing alongside the Chinese Communist Party. So just as that is an example, me personally, outside the United States, and especially if it's somewhere as, as complicated and as risky and as complex as, as China or Africa or <laughs> South, you know, South, uh, you know, where, wherever you're going. Um, I think that, you know, if it's outside of the S&P 500 where we have, you know, these are the outside the United States where we have property light rights that are absolutely, you know, second to none. Um, and and <clears throat> we have a, a shareholder base that that demands transparency and et cetera and so on. Um, I think paying somebody fifty basis points to manage your portfolio, like like American funds, isn't crazy. I think their new world fund, their new perspective funds, those make a lot of sense. And I don't own a lot of mutual funds. I don't sell my my clients don't own a lot of mutual funds. My you know my family doesn't own a lot of mutual funds, um, but do own American funds. I do own American funds and both that new world and new perspective fund. So anyway, that's my thoughts on 2020 outlook. I wish you guys the best of luck in 2020. And, uh, we'll of course be with you every step of the way. We'll be breaking down the screens and, and looking for fun interviews to do. So, uh, send us a, find us on Twitter at compounder bros, uh, wealth management, or that's my handle. At least just hit that in and, um, <clears throat> peace.